Welcome to our second class in this Old Testament survey. We'll be focusing on the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, if you don't have a handout, they are back there uh, by, um, by our, our computer, um, and so they are available. recommend you have one. Um, I put a slew of verse references in here. Some will go over. Others are just there for your reference. So I encourage you to grab a handout if you don't have one already. Um, by way of introduction for this uh, for this this class this morning, I just want to say, you know, the, the book of Exodus. We are blessed with a wealth of source material on this stuff. I mean, there's just just all sorts of information if you want to get a good handle on the story. And to give you an illustration, uh, this week alone, I watched the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. Learned a lot. <laughs> I I watched the DreamWorks animated classic, The Prince of Egypt. Can't recommend that enough. Sing-along version only, of course. And then uh, I think I watched no less than seven episodes of VeggieTales, which was just super edifying. Um, I I trust you know I'm kidding. Um, And if you don't, let's talk afterwards, please. Um, But in in reality, there is a wealth of of stuff that's out there that depicts the story. Not all of it's accurate. In fact, very little bit is actually accurate. Um, But the story is really probably the story that is most often told out of every book in the Old Testament. With the possible exception of David and Goliath, this is probably the best, most well-known story in all of the Old Testament. And there's a reason for it. This story is kind of at the heart of Israel's story. The exodus out of Egypt is the single most important redemptive event in the Old Testament, arguably, at least. Um, It is the story of Israel's transition from family to nation. Um, And it is also where they are given the law. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that everything that happens in the rest of the Old Testament Um, It it can really be traced back to Israel's failure to obey what happens here in this book. And so this is absolutely worth our time, and uh, it is a privilege to sort of jump in and dig into it with you. Uh, Before we do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, and in particular, this book, I pray that we would all be receptive to what you would have for us this morning, that you would use me in, in, in this capacity as well, Lord, that we would walk through this accurately, faithfully, and edifyingly, and that you would be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, in your notes, the first, well, the first thing was the introduction. Uh, beyond that, we have preliminary matters. So we'll be doing this probably in each one of these classes, briefly going through um, a little bit of what you'd see in a, in a textbook on the subject. So criticism, um, what's meant by that is each of these books in the Old Testament you know, usually have some sort of academic critique. Um, and this is more just kind of making you aware of it. Um, ironically, given everything I just said about the centrality and the importance of Exodus, this story in particular has been naysayed um, in the academic community you know, from the beginning, essentially. Um, anytime you have a story in the Old Testament with a lot of supernatural events, uh, revelations of God, miracles, usually those get the harshest critique. Um, and critical views of this story kind of take the same tact as other critiques of the Old Testament. Um, you'll, if you were to read on the subject, you would see things like that this story was penned post-exile as a post hoc rationalization for why Israel uh, can and should occupy the land of Canaan. Um, you'll see maybe more moderate views like this is oral tradition passed down that's, that's penned later. Um, but for those of us who hold to the inerrancy and the accuracy of Scripture, obviously we take a different view. Um, as Tim mentioned last week, either one believes the Scripture's testimony about itself or one doesn't. Um, and so we're going to be ignoring all of those critical views and focusing on what the Bible says about this book uh, for our class this morning. Now, um, in terms of authorship, uh, also kind of taking the, the Bible at its word as we ought, uh, the answer to this is this is clearly penned by Moses. Um, in your notes there, there's a half dozen different uh, Exodus references. Those are all instances in the book where Moses is writing something, uh, where God has directed Moses to write something. Um, so there's clear internal testimony that Moses is a guy who has written down the accounts of what's happened here. 
Um, but beyond that, we have the words of Jesus in Luke 20, 37. And can I get a volunteer perhaps to read that one just for the group's sake? Josh, thank you. Luke 20, 37. Jesus' words on the subject as to who wrote the book. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. So that's an important passage for two reasons. One, clearly the passage about the burning bush is in Exodus. Jesus is attributing Moses as the author of Exodus. Um, But we'll also come back to this. Notice sort of the covenantal reference um, that Jesus is alluding to there. It's a really important focus of this book. Um, So we have uh, criticism, we have authorship, dating. Um, In terms of dating of the book, you know, Tim spoiled it last time for me, Um, but it's uh, 1446 is is the most conservative um, uh, date that we would give to the book of Exodus. And really that comes from a reference, mostly a reference in 1 Kings 6.1, but also a little bit of of archaeology. 1 Kings 6.1, I'll just read that for you. It says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, um, he began to build the house of the Lord. And so 480 years after the fourth year of Solomon's reign, Solomon's reign is typically dated 966 BC. And so you get 446 BC as the date of Exodus. There is another date that is put forward. It's in the 1200s. And it's mostly based off of a disagreement over the archaeological evidence, um, but the Bible's own testimony generally stands at the 1446 date. So that is what we'll go with for the class. Um, Now, in terms of the purpose of the book, I'm going through this quickly. Uh, These are all preliminary matters. Uh, We're going to dive most deeply into the structure, the themes, the theology, and application of the book, but just want to kind of make sure we're setting the table here. Uh, In terms of the purpose of the book, the genre is historic narrative. Um, This is a recounting of events, and so the first and foremost purpose of the book is for y'all to know the events. Um, But in terms of why those events are important, I did put uh, a blurb there in your handout, and it's to narrate the covenant faithfulness of the sovereign of the universe in rescuing his people and transforming them from a family to a nation under his rule. To narrate the covenant faithfulness of the sovereign of the universe and rescuing his people and transforming them from a family to a nation under his rule. That is an attempt at summarizing the uh, Moses' intent, the Holy Spirit's intent in capturing these events. So we have criticism, authorship, dating, and general purpose. Are there any questions on any of that? I know, again, move through it quickly, but... These are just preliminary matters. Any questions, comments? All right, excellent. Let's move into the book itself um, and kind of structure and major events. One thing to highlight that doesn't come across super well in most modern translations is the uh, literary connection between this book and the book of Genesis. Um, the, the name of the book Exodus came much, much later. Actually, it was the Greek translators, um, the Septuagint, who actually coined that name for this book in the Hebrew Bible. Um, you will probably see it under the, category, or the, the header of the names or a little longer. Um, uh, and these are the names of, which is actually the opening words in Exodus. Um, and there is a connective there at the very beginning of the book. It starts with the word and, and these are the names of. And so if you were to read the end of Genesis and you were to read the beginning of Exodus, it just sort of reads as if it's another chapter in the story. Um, there is a tremendous amount of, of continuity between the two books in terms of how the end of one and the beginning of the other are structured. Now, in terms of dividing up this book, um, there are two basic schemes. I put both in your notes as well. Um, you can either kind of divide this up into two sections or to three. And the hinge is really verses 16 to 18. I, or chapter 16 to 18. I put chapter references and parentheticals next to those sections. If you were to pull up 10 different commentaries on the book, you would probably have slightly argumentatively different chapter references for each of those categories. But... You know, generally speaking, the two section is looking at uh, the Exodus story proper and getting to Mount Sinai and then what happens at Mount Sinai. 
Um, and we're going to use that scheme today uh, for the class. Really, really, if you if you read the book wholesale through, you see two big events, two big stories that Moses focuses on. One is the deliverance of Egypt or Israel out of Egypt, and then you know getting to Mount Sinai. And then uh, from 19 to the end of the book, uh, chapter 40, uh, what happens at Sinai is the other big pericope, the other big area of emphasis. Uh, Chapters 1 to 15 are that really, really well-known part of the story. Uh, We go from Israel being a prosperous people in Egypt to the Pharaoh who knows them dying. Uh, to the you know attempted genocide of Israel, or at least the, the mass murder of Israeli babies, um, we see Moses' deliverance. We see his calling from God, his cowardly response. We see um, him uh, ultimately and Aaron going to confront the Pharaoh, the ten plagues, and the deliverance out of uh, Egypt itself. And chapter. 14 is the Red Sea incident, and then chapter 15 is sort of, um, you know, it's, it's Moses' song of praise, and so it's a, like a, a, a worshipful recap of everything that's happened so far in the story. Uh, once you get to chapters 16 to 18, the narrative does shift a little tiny bit in focus. Israel is now properly out of Egypt, they're not being pursued by anyone, and they're on their way to Mount Sinai. And it's about a three-month trip, plus or minus, um, if memory serves. Um, These chapters really focus on two things. God's provision for a unfaithful, grumbling Israel. um, And a little bit of a tee-up in terms of this whole family-to-nation thing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, That happens primarily in chapter 18. Moses gets reunited with his father-in-law, who gives him some really practical governance advice. Uh, When you get to chapters 19 to 40, this is all about Mount Sinai. Um, This is uh, God preparing his people. This is him thundering on the mountain. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments and a bunch of sundry laws. Um, This is Israel's massive sin with the golden calf uh, and the consequences they suffer. And the book ends with direction and instruction for worship and Israel getting ready to head out to the promised land in Canaan. So this is the the overall structure of the book. Again, two big stories that are focused on, uh, obviously interconnected. Everything in the beginning of Exodus is meant to lead Israel to Mount Sinai, starting in chapter 19. But if you're dividing the book, two big sections is kind of the best way to go. Um, But one reason I'm calling out this third division is chapters 16 to 18 do have, uh, I think, a pretty thematically important role not just in the story, but overall in the context of the Old Testament. So we're going to spend some time talking through kind of what happens in those chapters as well. Man, this feels a little dry. Um, any, any questions, comments, or concerns so far? It's all making sense, hopefully seeing some, some gracious nods. Greg. Since you mentioned, um, rightly so, the connection, the continuity between Exodus and Genesis, could you just say a, a brief word or two about its connection with the rest of the Pentateuch that follows. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Exodus is sort of the, um, the, 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 I'll say this. When, when you look at what Israel goes through in the book, they have been redeemed by God out of slavery in Egypt. They are now at Mount Sinai. They have been reconstituted essentially as a nation, not a family, and they have been given the, the law. Um, what happens in the rest of the Pentateuch is essentially uh, a much deeper dive into what happens in the law and then the uh, journey of that generation towards the promised land. They'll never get there. They sin. They sin repeatedly. Um, but ultimately, it's the, uh, the, the, the journey of this generation um, from Egypt to, uh, to, to, to striking distance of the promised land before they, before they all die off. And so the rest of the Pentateuch is sort of this completion of the story. Um, it's a, a further giving of the law, and it is Israel right there on the verge of entering the promised land with a new, new generation. Sure. Other questions? Josh. Oh, comment. I really like that you emphasized the connection. Like, these are the names that it connects with Genesis, and it also kind of tees up the rest of the book. Cool how, like the primary antagonist Pharaoh, he's never named. We don't know his name, but we know the names of the two lowly midwives. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, like everyone, 
in the region knows the name of God as a result of what he does. Yeah. Uh, it's just really cool how it kind of highlights that, right? Yeah, that's a great point. It's a great point. And if VeggieTales is to believe Pharaoh, we don't know his name, but he was a giant anthropomorphic cucumber, which is, you know, good for historical notes. Um, uh, <laughs> I promise I'll stop making that joke. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, I didn't, pre- I didn't prepare that well, unfortunately. Um, other, other questions or comments so far? No? Okay, that's the structure of the book. Let's move on to theology and themes. And this is where uh, I start to feel slightly inadequate, um, well, maybe more than slightly. Um, I, I have to make some editorial uh, decisions as to what we're going to focus on today. This is a really complicatedly rich book. And the reason why I started my introduction the way I did, there's going to be an application point at the end, I promise you, um, but kind of highlighting the point here, this is, this is a book that we have all heard the story of probably a million times collectively in this room, but it's, it's far, far deeper than the superficial tellings that we often see in, in these movies and, and TV shows and whatever else. Um, there's a lot here. The language that Moses uses um, has distinctive echoes of the, the, the creation account in, in Genesis 1 through 3. Um, if you look at Moses' life, so Moses um, is ultimately rescued from Pharaoh, he departs out of Egypt, he goes uh, into the wilderness, he meets God, he goes back to Egypt, he leads his people out. Um, that story mirrors what happens to Israel. I mean, there's a, a really interesting narrative parallel between those two. Um, we could talk probably for the next two hours just on the law and, and how the Ten Commandments may or may not relate to the rest of the sundry laws given uh, in Exodus. I mean, there's just a wealth of material that we could go through in this book. And so I've had to pick some, and so I'm, I'm narrowing it down. Um, if, there are, if there is time, we'll, we'll go through some of what I just mentioned. But for now, let's just say that this is scratching the surface of some of the big theologically important information in the book of Exodus. Um, but that said, let's start with the first one, which is the supremacy of Yahweh. And if I had to pick just one thing to go through, it's going to be this one. This one is the the theme that is probably most predominant in the book, arguably. Um, It's it's writ large over the whole book, um, you know, including how God shows himself to Israel in Exodus uh, chapter 19. He descends and it's described as, you know, thunderous, flashes of lightning, the sound of trumpets, a smoking mountain, um, uh, we see the vision of God's backside later on in the book in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses says, show me the glory, your glory. And he's put in the cleft of the rock and God passes by him, showing him his, 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 his uh, physical glory as well as proclaiming his name. Um, God's supremacy, his transcendence, his bigness, his awesomeness is everywhere in this book. Um, and if you read the book and you don't walk away with a sense of the majesty and supremacy of God, you probably didn't read it super carefully um, or at all. Um, it's just everywhere in the book. Um, but one a special way in which this is shown is in chapters 1 through 14. Um, and so a bit of historic context in the ancient Near East, um, cultures often thought about conflict with other cultures in the context of, of, of the divine. Um, if the Philistines are fighting Egypt, it's not just a clash between the Philistines and Egypt, it's a clash between their gods. And if Egypt beats the Philistines, then surely that means that Amun-Ra is better than Dagon, um, or the other way around, depending on who wins the battle or the overall conflict. And so there's this proxy measure thing that is going on in the ancient Near East as they kind of look at history and events. And that is absolutely something that is on display here in God's triumph over Egypt in those first 14 verses. Um, Remember, Egypt is the superpower in the world at the time. Um, They are at the pinnacle of human might, and their gods were almost certainly viewed as the most powerful at the time. And so what we see in Exodus, and I put that another blurb in your notes, what we see in Exodus is a carefully choreographed demonstration of Yahweh's superiority over the most powerful gods in the world. And that's really one important framing device for how what happens in the first 14 chapters in Exodus. And, you know, we can see this by just asking ourselves a couple of interesting questions, like, 
why these specific ten plagues? Why frogs, for example? When God was giving Moses uh, signs to take back to Israel and to demonstrate before Pharaoh, why did his staff turn into a snake and not an ostrich? Um, why did Israel cross the Red Sea? It wasn't strictly necessary. It's not like Egypt is, is you know, right next to the Red Sea and you have to go across it through boat. I mean, there's other ways of getting around it. Why crossing the Red Sea? Um, and so I'm not going to go answer all of those questions. You can do some research on your own if you like, but some of them I'm going to highlight here. Um, and, and the answer is uh, most of these things have some reference or tie back to uh, Egyptian mythology. Um, and a couple of examples. Um, over and over and over again in the, new t- uh, the, in the story, uh, we see a reference to God's mighty hand or his outstretched arm. Um, can I get a volunteer to read Exodus 3, verses 19 to 20? And we're going to be doing a lot of Exodus quoting from now on, here on out, so uh, keep a finger in that book pretty please. But Exodus 3, 19 to 20, can I get a volunteer? Anyone brave soul? Greg, thank you. Um, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. There's, uh, thank you. Perfect. Um, you could look at chapter 6, verse 1, 7, 4, 15, 16. It's, it's a lot of references to this mighty hand outstretched arm. If you look at Egyptian texts at the time, um, you will see, or just in general, the pharaoh in particular is described as having a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He rules Egypt on the basis of his might. He is dominant in the world on the basis of his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. It's not a coincidence that this language is attributed to God because God ultimately is coming up against Pharaoh, who is uh, in Egyptian mythology a divine king. We'll cover that in a second. Um, And he is asserting his absolute dominance over anyone who would pretend the title of God. Uh, Exodus makes sure that we know it is Yahweh, not Pharaoh, who has the mighty hand or outstretched arm. Um, Another interesting example are the plagues themselves. They have some degree of correspondence with uh, both the deities and the roles of Egyptian gods. Uh, For example, the Nile, which is just critical, absolutely necessary, life-giving river in Egypt, um, it's associated with uh, the god Hapi, uh, H-A-P-I, and uh, this is a hermaphroditic god uh, of fertility, um, kind of a creepy-looking thing. Um, and uh, you know, the, the Nile, this life-giving river that if it were to dry up tomorrow, Egypt would essentially have to you know, would, would go away. Um, the, there's a reason why that the, one of the plagues is the turning of the Nile to blood. It is God demonstrating his superior, superiority over that which gives life to Egypt and, and happy himself, most likely. Um, the darkness plague is another good example. Does anybody know the chief deity of Egypt? Anyone want to dust off? Ra, yeah, Amon Ra, absolutely. Remember what he was the god of? The sun, absolutely. And so there's that pesky little plague of darkness. Um, God can blind the sun at any point in time that he so chooses. It's not Ra who gives light, it's Yahweh who does. Um, And then going back to the pharaoh, again, the pharaoh is a divine king, and his role in Egyptian mythology is to ensure the continuation of order. Egyptians were particularly distasteful of the concept of chaos, and the pharaoh's job, the reason why it was so important to have a pharaoh, is because his job was to make sure that everything happened the way it's supposed to, and that the order of creation was continuated, made continuous. Um, And so it's really interesting then um, that when you look at the plagues and you look at the creation account in Genesis 1, there's there's an inverse relationship, and I'll highlight what I mean. And these aren't necessarily in order. It's probably better to say that there's a corresponding plague to a corresponding uh, element of creation in Genesis. So Genesis 1, God creates light. Day 2, we have the waters ordered and separated. Day 3, you got dry land and vegetation. Day 4, the luminaries are created. Day 5, birds, fish, and sea life. And then 6, animals and humans. In the plagues, 
You have darkness prevailing over light. That's the opposite of, of light coming out of darkness. You have um, chaos uh, by changing of the water from blood. Uh, you have the destruction of vegetation, the, the, the darkening of luminaries. You have the, the death of fish and frogs. Um, and then you have the plague of insects and ultimately the killing of the firstborn. So it's not a one-to-one exact order correspondence, but you see the language of creation and you see the opposite language in these plagues. And essentially what God is doing in imposing judgment on Israel is descending them into chaos. He is, you know, this is the ultimate sort of uh, gut punch to Pharaoh. Your job as divine king, as the pinnacle of this mythology, is to maintain order. You have refused me, and is, uh, Egypt is going to descend into chaos and disorder and death and destruction. Now, um, in case you think I am making too much out of this Egyptology stuff, there's biblical evidence for it. Um, Numbers 33, 3 through 4, I'm going to read that. Uh, Numbers 33, 3 through 4, uh, this, this says, They set out from Ramesses on the first month, and on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all of their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also, the Lord executed judgments. So what happened in chapters 1 through 14 is absolutely a referendum, an attack on the religious structure of of Egypt. Not because they were particularly bad, uh, I think, but because they were regarded as the most powerful. And this is a testament to God's supremacy as he triumphs over them in a very, very dramatic way. Um, In Exodus 18... Um, and can I get a volunteer to read that? Exodus 18, verses 8 to 11. And while you're looking for it, I'll just tee it up. Um, this is Egypt or Israel coming out of Egypt, and right before they get to Sinai, they have a sort of a reunion with Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And um, um, they recount everything that's going to happen. I'll have somebody actually just read verse 11. Um, but they recount everything that happened, and Jethro, this is his reaction. Who can? Tim, thank you. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they don't arrogate the people. And so you have this bystander who hears of the account. His first reaction is, wow, Yahweh is actually the biggest god because of how he triumphed over the gods of, of, of Egypt. Um, and I think the in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people is a reference to the fact that if Pharaoh had graciously let them go, there would have been no conflict. But because he decided to dig his heels in and say, no, I'm not letting the people go, it became a conflict between Yahweh and you know the so-called gods of Egypt with Yahweh prevailing. So um, I think in this first point we absolutely see Exodus is just... Uh, one of the big thematic elements is the supremacy of God and his, his sovereignty, period, full stop. Does that make sense? Any questions? Any comments? All right, I'll move on. Um, the next big thematic element is God's covenant faithfulness and Israel's shift from family <laughs> To nation, God's covenant faithfulness and Israel's shift from family to nation, um, and I mean, thankfully, Pastor Greg did preach through the Book of Genesis for uh, for quite some time, and so we get to see, and hopefully, we all recall, sort of the the narrative structure and a little bit about the areas of emphasis. Once you get to Abraham, you know, you start moving away from sort of you know creation and world history, and you get to um, a family-focused accounting of God's dealing with humanity. Abraham begets Isaac, Isaac begets Jacob, Jacob has a boatload of children. Um, and, but the whole story is about this particular family. Their uh, parental issues, the individual faithfulness of its members, um, you know, uh, 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 brothers squabbling, you know, those sorts of things. It's an understatement. But um, there's a family focus in the book of Genesis because the covenant people of God in this context are primarily a family. When you get to Exodus, that shifts away almost immediately. Um, while there's still a, a generational account at the beginning of the book, uh, Israel becomes really, 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 really big and prosperous. The uh, familial lines don't go away. People are still regarded you know, as being a, of the tribe of Levi and others. But you don't get the same family focus anymore. You start seeing Israel as this homogenous group of people. Um, they're, they're regarded in a different way than they are in Exodus. And this is not... Um, 
accidental. Um, um, at the end of the book, we don't have sort of the family of Jacob much anymore. We have the nation of Israel. And this development is a, is, is a result of a promise that God made to Abram before he was Abraham. In Genesis 12, 2, speaking to him, God says, I will make you a great nation. And later, in a reiteration of this promise, God tells Abram that would happen after a period of oppression. In Genesis 15, 13 to 14, God says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. So when the appointed years were over, Exodus frames God's deliverance of Israel as him being faithful to this covenant promise uh, to, to Abram. Um, in Exodus 2, 23 to 25, can I get a volunteer to read that one pretty please? Um, and while I'm doing it, also Exodus 19, 5 to 6. So Exodus 2, 23 to 25 and... 19. Uh, Exodus 2 there, thank you. Uh, Wilson in the back, perfect. So Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So his deliverance is explicitly framed in terms of his remembering of the covenant and everything that follows after is God being faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham, which includes uh, making Israel a great nation. In fact, um, again, over and over and over again in the book, um, God is often calling back to this covenant or the relationship he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, we mentioned Jesus' quote in, in Luke early on, you know, the passage of the burning bush, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that language over and over and over again uh, in the book. Um, in fact, um, when we get to uh, what God is doing at Sinai, he is, he is, in a way, reframing and reconstituting Israel as a nation before him. Um, and it's interesting, too, chapter 18, right before we get to Sinai, when Moses goes out and he meets with Jethro, Jethro looks at Moses and he sees that he's haggard and he's weary. Um, and it's this really interesting account where, where he, he looks at it and says, you've got people coming to you like all day long, every day, and you're dispensing wisdom, you're dispensing judgment. Like this is too much for one man. You need to pause this. You need to appoint faithful people who hate bribes and you need to put them over thousands and hundreds and fifties. Well, I, you know, when you read that story, you're like, okay, well, that's just good fatherly advice. Yeah, great. But it's, it's more than that. This is Israel being reordered in a sense. You have this mass of people who have Moses as their prophet and their lead, but now there's the, the beginnings of, of, a, of a structure, uh, of an organization, organizing principle that Israel is going to operate under. They're, they're transitioning from, you know, again, uh, family into, into an organized group, into a nation. Um, but Wilson, you have Exodus 19, 5 to 6. So in that passage, um, this is God giving an introductory comment to the law that he's going to give starting in chapter 20. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the preamble to the law is you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a reframing, reconstituting, a, a, almost a recreative element, kind of using the, the themes of, of Exodus, um, of the nation of Israel. And so this, this theme we see over and over again is God in the book, and everything that happens in the book, is being faithful to fulfill the promises that he made to Abram or Abraham. Um, questions on that? Comments on that? That makes sense so far. Tim? You're talking about God responding to his promises to Abraham and advancing forward. And you, you, you have us at the sort of at the base of Sinai here, but what's going on when he made a covenant with Abraham? That's the basis for his salvation with them, and then he brings them out and makes a covenant with them. What's any thoughts on the relationship between those two covenants? Yeah. Um, wow. That. Uh, thanks for the softball. I appreciate that. 
Yeah, so the, the question is, what's the relationship between um, the, the, the Mosaic covenant, essentially, and, and God's covenant with Abraham? Um, and that is the, I mean, that's a dividing line in the church for, for a long time now. Um, and so you've got a couple of different ways you can look at it. You can look at it in the context that it is a, you know, essentially a continuation. Um, our Reformed brothers and sisters would essentially argue that God's gracious covenant with Abraham um, is uh, not necessarily, um, I mean, no, they're certainly going to argue it's set aside or changed by the covenant at Sinai, but they're going to argue that um, it's still on the basis of grace, it's still on the basis of a relationship with him, and um, it's, you know, essentially what the people who have been redeemed by God ought to follow. Um, you have other camps that would argue, and I'd be probably more in this one, um, that this is a parenthetical, um, that the a covenant that God made with Abraham that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus it has always been and always will be the main promise by which salvation comes. And what you see in this covenant and the law is ultimately a, um, a step aside from that. And it is a, um, um, a, a, a very important pictorial representation to Israel and to all of humanity about the need for a savior, our failures as sinners, and the uh, reality of human depravity. Um, but again, highly arguable points on both sides, and it's been a topic of consternation for, for a very long time. A- anything you want to say to that, Tim? Or Yeah, um, no, I appreciate that. That's, yeah, and I, I didn't mean to make this but just yeah and I think at least looking at what it was for Israel it seems like it's um, a, a manner in which the Abrahamic covenant is going to be enjoyed and expressed would you say something like that like it's not him canceling or stopping the Abrahamic covenant sure. but it's a within that broader it's like okay now here's the plan it becomes more specific it's, it, I mean, there's just some complexity to wrestle with, but it's it's not a, a, a whole different thing he's doing. But but it's something within that broader Abrahamic promise. There, there, I think it's indisputable that the what happens at Sinai is related to God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Um, it's also indisputable that there is no salvation on the basis of what happens at Sinai. Um, those are those are also I think, just two very clear facts. Um, whether or not what happens at Sinai is sort of a all right now that you've been you know redeemed pursuant to uh, God's promises to Abraham um, by faith, here's how you ought to live as my redeemed people. Or if this is you know uh, something else, that's that's kind of where the, the point of debate comes. But it is absolutely related to. Uh, God's promises to Abraham. I think the verses we've read have made that clear. Um, but at the same point in time, you know, just just read Galatians. Um, this is this is not a salvific experience or covenant uh, that you no know, one earns their way to God on the basis of what happens here. Tyler. Uh, so when Christ comes and he obeys the law perfectly, is he fulfilling it, that covenant, the Sinai covenant, or is it is what he does and his perfect obedience separate from? I don't think you can separate them. I mean, his his obedience was in the context of God's commandments given to the nation of Israel. And so the standard by which his obedience was measured was the law of Moses, which he obeyed to its fullest. Yep, 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 yep. Emily. That's a good question. So the question is, why did Jethro be the one to tell Moses how to take the burden off and, and institute this organizing principle? Why wasn't something God gave? Um, it, 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 you know, the, the, the simple punting answer is there's really not any indication clearly in the text uh, to answer it. But, um, you know, I think there is wisdom in, in saying that, you know, we, just that example 
of people who are in, in, in Jethro status as a um, you know believer at that point is you know entirely up in the air. Um, but um, you know the, the idea that there is there is wisdom that can be gained from other people and doesn't have to be you know solely given by revelation is a good principle for us. I mean, we as a body, there are all sorts of things that the Bible talks about in principle, but doesn't cover in uh, super specific uh, application points. You know, it talks a lot about marriage, but not who to marry. Um, or if I just talk about who to marry, it's in, it's in generalities, and so it doesn't tell me to marry this person or that person, and so. I got to bring wisdom to this, the situation. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to speak wisdom into my life. And so, you know, if I had to put an answer to it, I would probably say it's illustrating, you know, that principle more than anything else. But that's off the cuff. Other questions? No, no, no more. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, Tim. Um, appreciate that. <laughs> I'll, I'll think of some hard questions for your next class. Um, <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. All right, well, getting back to our, our big thematic elements, um, another one, I think, is the, the picture of, of human depravity. And spend some time on this one. It, it's not necessarily, you know, of all the themes I could have picked, it, it's not the one, you know, it's not number three in the, the loading order in, in the book of Exodus. Um, but it is, I think, still a, a dominant theme, and it is something that I think it's, it's important for our overall understanding of the Old Testament. So um, I'm going to spend some time here. And, and specifically what I mean is in Exodus, we have this reoccurring theme of Israel being idolatrous, cowardly, and unfaithful over and over and over again. Um, Israel does not come across super good in Exodus, uh, overly simplifying it. Um, and we can, we can look at this in, in three different ways. First is Moses. Um, Moses, as the spokesperson for Israel, um, he has some great moments, um, but he also has some bad ones. Um, so chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is you know, his, his origin story, right? It's the uh, uh, being floated down the river and being rescued and you know, being nursed by his mom, and, but growing up in Pharaoh's household. Um, verse 11 in chapter 2 is the first time that we see Moses, the man, come on the scene. And in verses 11 and 12, the very, very first thing that we see Moses do is commit murder or manslaughter, one of the two. Um, it's, it's not a great opening scene for Moses. Um, later on, um, just a chapter later, chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses. And does he jump on Team Israel and Team Deliverance and go out there to, to save the people? No, absolutely not. He, he refuses. Uh, you know, he basically says, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a poor speaker. I'm not the right guy. Pick something else. And even after God says, literally, I made the mouth. I can put words in your mouth. Like, don't worry about it. He still refuses. Um, and so Moses is, is, you know, shown to be, you know, cowardly at the beginning of the book. Um, and then you have Israel as a people. And, I mean, these guys grumble and complain and whine in a world-class way. They go to hysterics like zero to 60 pretty fast. Um, they are to complaining what Russians are to figure skating. I mean, if this was a, this, you know, they'd be the gold medalist at the end of the day in this event if this was an event. Um, and a couple examples, and it's, it's, it's worth kind of going through it. Um, in chapter 14, they've just come out of Egypt. And remember, They've just seen God work a massive deliverance. They just come out of Egypt, and they see Pharaoh, and they're terrified. And in chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, um, I'm going to skip, through, skip to verse 11. Uh, it says, The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, it's a... <laughs> Not only is that just like a, 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 a massive tweak of God's nose, but this is like the equivalent of wanting to get divorced on your honeymoon, right? I mean, they've just got delivered out of Egypt, and they see something scary, and it's an immediate capitulation, an immediate capitulation. Um, in chapter 15, they grumble and complain over water. Um, in chapter 16, they uh, grumble and complain over food. And this is a deeply and ironic uh, our deeply ironic and sad complaint. Uh, chapter 16, verses 2 to 3 says, 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meal pots and ate bread to the full. But you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now that's not just a complaint. That's saying the slavery that we had in Egypt is better than being under the rule of God here in the wilderness. Um, it's like the equivalent of said, I'd rather, I'd rather be, you know, at a, uh, insert some sinful place than at church. I mean, this is, it's, a, it's a pretty big statement that, that uh, Israel is making here. Um, there's more complaining in chapter 17, again, over water. Um, and those weren't even the first times they've complained. They complained um, actually in the middle of the Exodus story uh, when uh, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he gave them an increase of, of bricks to make without straw. Um, and so there's, there's just complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint. Um, but the most decisive, the most decisive piece of, e- uh, of evil for Israel has got to be the golden calf story. Um, and uh, we, we don't have time to walk through that in exhaustive detail. Really don't have time for it. Um, but uh, a couple of just quick observations to make. So if you have a finger in the book of Exodus and you want to turn over to chapter 20, um, I would just call your attention to the first verse in chapter 20. Uh, The first verse in chapter 20 is uh, God being the one who speaks the Ten Commandments. This is, uh, you know, he starts out this revelation at Sinai himself, and he is is delivering the Ten Commandments. Um, A few verses later, if you want to drop your eyes down to verses 18 to 20, what we see there is the people being terrified of God speaking. They're terrified of it. Thunder, sound of trumpets, smoking mountain, they want nothing to do with it. And so they literally ask Moses, like, hey, can't do this. Like, you go talk to him and you tell us what he says. Like, they're, they're so scared of, of who God is. Like, it's such an awesome display of his might and power that they want a mediator. And yet, at the very first opportunity, literally the first opportunity, they ask for this golden calf. They have, they, have, they have just been rescued. They have been provided for in the wilderness. They have had some degree of God's self-revelation uh, to the point where they know who he is and they know he's a scary God. And then the very first thing they do is abandon him for something else. Now, um, question. Uh, I'm not, you know, if you have your, your, your finger open to Exodus 20, you got the Ten Commandments right there. Which of the Ten Commandments did Israel break in asking for the calf? Emily, first one, okay. Second one, absolutely. Any others? No, it's just those two. Um, the the second one is probably the most clear, right? In the fact that um, you know you shall not make any graven image, and so a calf is definitely a graven image. You know, strike one for Israel. Um, and a lot of commentators, at least the, the, the ones I've read, will, will attempt to make what happens here an exam, example of, of, of syncretism. Uh, syncretism is essentially like the merging of two things. And so they'll argue that what Israel's doing here is not so much the um, you know, ask me, asking to have Yahweh replaced, but just a, have a physical representation of Yahweh to worship. And in the story, that does appear to be what Aaron does. After he makes the calf, he says, this is your God who led you out of Egypt. Um, And so he's still attributing the act to Yahweh, but he's looking at the calf as a manifestation of God. So clearly a second commandment violation. But that's not what Israel actually asked for. Um, In chapter 32, verse 1, uh, we read, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go out before us. Um, Now, some of you, if you're using different translations in that story, in Exodus 32, you'll have God singular. Other translations will use God plural. That's because of the the nature of the word Elohim. It can be read either way, essentially. But 
the um, make, out, make us gods who go before us, the go before us part, that's third person plural um, in the Hebrew. So this is, this is not like a, you know, a, a play off of Elohim. This is, this is the, they seem to be asking for um, a pantheon here. They seem to be asking for a replacement of Yahweh. And as Israel was solidly Trinitarian right then and there, you know, the fact that they're asking for multiple gods seem to indicate that they're moving away from um, or, or doing a wholesale abandonment of, of who Yahweh is. And so I'm beating a dead horse here, but you see just instance of, of emphasis on Israel's depravity throughout this book. Um, it is thematic. And I think it's captured for three reasons. First, it happened that way, and so it's a historic narrative, and so of course Moses is going to include it. Um, second, the grumbling and faithlessness of Israel serves to highlight the fact that God's dealing with them. It has, has everything to do with his promises and his faithfulness and nothing to do with their worthiness or merit. And so happened that way. This is to highlight the fact that God is ultimately the one, um, and it's, it's on his, his free grace, his faithfulness, that he's dealing with Israel, not their merit. But also, too, and this kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with the law, um, there is an argument to be made that Israel is a, is, a, is a light motif in the Old Testament. And that is a very pretentious and German way of saying that they're a picture. Um, a light motif is a recurring theme in, in music or, um, or in literature. Um, and so the, the idea is that Israel is a, is a sort of picture for human depravity in the Old Testament. Not that they are you know, particularly bad, but they highlight the fact that you can have a group of people who are given every opportunity. They are given uh, deliverance out of, of, of Egypt uh, by the hand of God. They are given the clearest understanding of uh, uh, who God is and how they ought to live. And they are given messengers, prophets, who are meant to constantly steer them back to God and give them instruction. And yet you see what in the Old Testament over and over and over again, failure, unbelief, idolatry. And, you know, unless you want to make the argument that, you know, the Jews are just the worst people in the world, which is not a biblical argument to make, what they do is they serve a picture. Because if people have all of these opportunities, they have all of these benefits, and they still engage as repeatedly and often and generationally as they do in idolatry, and the false not in God, this isn't innocent, there's something wrong with us, fundamentally. Israel's repeated failure in the Old Testament highlights the fact that we are fundamentally broken and we need grace. So I'm, I'm emphasizing this theme for that reason. I think it's one of the more important things to point out in the context of the book of Exodus. Does that make sense? Any any questions or comments or concerns? Aaron? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if, if I personally would, would uh, regard the grumbling as a worse offense at this point in their history as the idolatry, only because they came out of Egypt. I think that's really all they knew about how to worship God. They, Moses had got received the commandment, you shall not have the gods, but the people probably hadn't heard that yet, uh, or learned, you know, maybe this is a way for them to learn that, but I just think, I think we might regard the grumbling, because they knew what God did for them, and they still weren't pressing him. <laughs> I don't know, I see that as the, as the uh, worst end. Well, so to that point, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in fairness, you know, what, what's what's worse, uh, you know, cheating on your spouse or, you know, manslaughter? Like, you know, they're 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 probably you know in the same ballpark, um, and so, you know, ranking sins, um, you know, you could you can make a judgment one way or the other. But going back to Exodus chapter twenty, God spoke the Ten Commandments directly to him. That part's really, is is kind of exactly uh, it's what the, the text calls out. It's you know God spoke them in the hearing of the people. That's why later on in verse eighteen to twenty, they're like, we can't handle this. Have somebody else go speak to him. Um, and so there is a sense in which they have heard these words um, and they are accountable to them at the end of the day. So when it comes to chapter thirty-two and they've sinned with a the calf, they're they know the commandment and they know what they're breaking. Um, it's uh, it's not as if they you know they hadn't received that that revelation just yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to your, again, to your earlier point, what they do in grumbling and complaining, um, I mean, it's it is it is an evil evil thing. Um, by calling it grumbling and by calling it complaining, I may be underselling it some. It's it is not a, a simple or small thing. It is idolatrous. It is unfaithful. Um, it calls into question God's goodness, His covenant faithfulness, His sovereignty, His provision. Like it is, it is bad. 
It is bad. Good question. Others? Gary? I'd like to just kind of make a comment here, Jim, probably preaching too much, but, you know, like it says in the 30th chapter of Exodus 32, and all the people saw that Moses delayed, and I got to thinking, and I, I wrote a little note by there about how quickly we forget how these children of Israel could forget all of these really marvelous, spectacular things that, that they saw and witnessed, and say, okay, now we need this new God. They, that to me, it seems like there's forgetfulness, mm-hmm. and I think for, you know, to be application sometimes in the Old Testament to the New Testament that helped me to understand. I looked in, you know, when I read Second Peter, and this is something that I'm working on in my own life, and that but in Second Peter chapter one and verse ten, I'll just read that. Do I have enough time? Maybe I'm going to take about two minutes. Two minutes is fine, yeah. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I just want to it says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And of this things that you should practice as a Christian. But it says to make certain, for as long as you practice and be a coach, I believe practice means you know this stuff, but you got to stay with it. you got to practice. You keep practicing. You keep practicing. You know? and, and then it says, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder... So, I think a warning for us from this Old Testament, from this Israel, mm-hmm. we need to practice. You know, we don't see these spectacular, wondrous things that I think, oh man, I would surely remember that. <laughs> I know I don't see those things, but I must keep practicing this faith and, and remind myself by getting into the Word and mm-hmm. studying it. So I get a great lesson from the children of Israel to help me. Mm-hmm. I better practice because if I don't, I might say, oh, they delayed and I need a new God. And so I would encourage all of us yeah. practice daily read. Practice, practice, practice. Make it an effort. Good sermon. Um, absolutely. And, 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 and maybe just summarizing for, for the folks who may not have heard it by way of analogy. Look, we're in a car you know, our, our lives, um, our natural bet. We're in a car that has an alignment that's terribly off. We're constantly wanting to go to the left um, and, uh, you know, left being, being sin. And, you know, Israel reminds us that we absolutely need to make sure that at all times we're pulling that steering wheel to the right and to the point that we're not exercising diligence and in both, in both what we practice and what we remember, um, you know, remembering who God is and what he's done for us, you know, in this side of the cross, of course, what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, we'll find ourselves just always naturally going in the direction we shouldn't. We have to, we have to course correct the car. And Israel's a reminder here of just how easy it is to you know, go off on that bent. Um, we do have to move on real fast. Um, so I got one more theme to go through and then some application points. Um, and I got about 12 minutes at most to do it. Uh, so the last one, um, uh, you know, this is, this is not something that at the time uh, would have been something super clear, uh, I think, in the book of Exodus, but it is worth talking about on this side of the cross. And that is typology. Um, The Exodus story, particularly the deliverance from Egypt, is typological in nature. And I'm going to ask, does anybody want to take a stab at defining what typology is? And if you don't know, that's totally fine. But anyone want to be brave? All right. Um, so ty- typology is, just to, to simplify it, it's, it's the idea that something is a, a picture of something that else that is yet to happen and tells us something about that future thing. So it is a picture um, of something that is yet to happen uh, that tells us about that future thing. Um, and Exodus is, is typological. It, it's a story that points to the later saving work of Jesus, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that by summarizing the story. So, 
Israel is in bondage to a hostile power, needs to be delivered. The deliverance is brought about by God in his timing accomplished by his servant, who is both a prophet and a mediator between God and his people. This redemption involved the blood of lambs to mark those to mark those whom death would pass over, and God instituted a special meal commemorating the event later. I mean, if you didn't know it, that could have been a summary of the four Gospels, right? I mean, it is essentially, it's the, the story of what happens here in Exodus is remarkably similar to the events that you know, God accomplishes through Jesus. What happens here is meant to point us to what happens in the cross. Um, and you know, we, we see explicit references to this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Um, we, are, we are meant to see echoes of God's covenant faithfulness. We are meant to see um, you know, principles um, um, uh, in the Exodus story that point to both the necessity and the glory of what God accomplished in the cross through Jesus Christ. And so, and there's a lot actually in Exodus um, that has sort of a, a future-focused reference. Um, and I, I'm pointing that out for a couple of reasons. One, it's just good to know. But also, too, it reminds us that when we're reading the Old Testament, there is so much of it that intrinsically points us to what God is going to do, either you know, has done through Jesus or what he is yet to do uh, for us on this side of the cross. You know, Israel's journey into Canaan, the promised land, is itself a typological reference to the new heavens and the new earth. And so, um, so much of the Old Testament story is us reading this and being able to see there is a, a new and a better version of all of these things that either we've experienced or have yet to experience in our lives. And again, just a really important thing to keep in mind as we're reading through Old Testament stories. That can be abused, absolutely, <laughs> but it is, it is a, 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 a way of looking at the Old Testament. Tim? There's another great thing. First, many intended all in a pretty extended way, reasons the same way about the Exodus events. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, application points. What can we take from the story um, a little more practically? And um, first one should be pretty self-explanatory. Worship. Um, when we read a book like Exodus and we see God's covenant faithfulness, we see his sovereignty, we see his supremacy, you know, it, it's not something that we check boxes on and our, our, our theological concepts and, you know, let's see, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so he's sovereign. That, that's true, but there is an absolute necessity to, to pause and say, God is sovereign, and let that impact us, let us cause us to, to worship, to appreciate who he is. Um, it's, not, it's not necessarily information to know about God. It should cause us to exult in God. Um, and so that's absolutely, I think, a, a natural implication or application of the book of Exodus. Um, second, we have every obligation and joy and privilege in trusting in that faithful sovereign. And I, I've made much about Israel's grumbling and complaining. And while it is, again, idolatrous, unfaithful, bad, there is an element, and I don't want to, what I'm about to say, undo what I've already said, but there is an element where you can see why they would be confused, um, you know, they've just been delivered out of, of Israel or Egypt, and here comes Pharaoh's army. I, I could be a little confused by that. Now, the response isn't to, to call out God and say, like, why are you going to kill us out here, God? I mean, the response, you know, you, you, you can express that confusion in a, in a faithful way, um, but you could see some degree of confusion. You know, three months wandering in the wilderness, they're thirsty, they're hungry, um, there's a legitimate ask. How are we going to be cared and provided for? Again, you can do that trusting in the sovereign hand of God, but again, there's, a, there's an element in which it's understandable that there'd be some confusion, some degree of being perplexed. Um, God's dispensation, his, his rule over our lives does not always seem clear to us in the moment, um, but we can look at a story like Exodus and see he is nonetheless faithful, he nonetheless provides. He is nonetheless good. And where he is leading us, we may not see in the moment, but it is ultimately where we ought to go. It's the best thing for us. And it will make sense in the bigger picture. We just need in the moment to be quiet and to trust. Um, third, going back to the point on depravity, um, I think I, I, I beat this horse a little bit, but, um, you know, the, the, the glorious deliverance that God provided Israel 
you know, they, they nonetheless, as we said, grumbled repeatedly. Um, and in the same way, kind of Gary's point, we need to recognize that we are no different, that our hearts can y- easily yearn to return to the sins that we have walked away from. And um, we need to remember who we are and remember who we are in Christ and what God has done for us. Related, fourth, uh, it is absolutely a, uh, a reminder to depend wholly on grace and wholly on Christ. If we have such a potential for evil, um, that realization demands that we are seeing ourselves as fully dependent on the grace that God gives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We bring nothing good to the table, we contribute nothing to our salvation, and we are in constant need of God's protection. And Exodus reminds us of these things. Uh, fifth, remember our promised land. Um, the book ends with Israel ready to head to Canaan. And as I mentioned, this generation's not going to get there. Um, the next generation, led by Joshua, will get there. Um, and it is a good land, but it is still plagued with you know, temptation and sin. And it's going to be fairly miserable for Israel because of how they react and how they disobey God. Our promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. It is a place that when God reconstitutes this world, we will have, or recreates this world, we will have a place without sin, without temptation. There'll be no tears. Just like Israel is looking forward to their time in Canaan, so should we be looking forward to the new heavens, the new earth, and the return of our Savior. So Exodus points us to that reality, and in the same way, it's an application point for us. And then lastly, this justifies my introduction, um, but don't gloss over this book. Um, you know, there, there's that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, and it absolutely does. You know, when I was you know, preparing for this and going back through the story, I had to stop myself like 30 times to just slow down and read the actual words of the text and not let my eyes just skim because, yeah, 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 I know how that works. Moses, baby, reads, gotcha. Like, no, no, stop, slow down. You see things. And when we are overly familiar with a book of the Bible or especially overly familiar with uh, visual depictions like the movies or TV shows that I referenced that, again, generally inaccurate um, or take liberties, it's just so easy to gloss over this book. But this is rich. Exodus is absolutely a book that is worth lingering over. Um, and so we just encourage everyone to sort of you know, uh, 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 take a special note of that, if that makes sense. All right. Um, we, are, we have three minutes left. Does anyone want to have a closing word before we pray? Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for this book. We thank you for um, everything that we see in it and the encouragements and the admonitions that we can take away from it. I pray, Lord, that um, everything we talked about this morning would be keen uh, in our remembrance, that we would be eager to practice them, that we would indeed know that we are loved by the one and only God of this universe who is sovereign, who is in control, and who is working everything together for our good. May we learn the lesson from Israel. May we relish that as opposed to complaining and grumbling in our daily lives, Lord, and may ultimately you get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.